Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. I was on this podcast before it was cool. That's, That's right. right. That was like the beginning. That was like yeah. right at the beginning, I think. Yeah. And back then, this new book of yours was a humble blog post. I feel like I remember we were walking around lower Manhattan and you were sort of like telling us, oh, man, I think I'm going to start writing about something that I'm feeling really nervous about. Okay. Yeah. And since then, lots of plans changed and it became a book. And then I had to finish the book. I, I have not figured out how to do the elevator pitch, but um, it basically is me spending six years thinking about what's wrong with my society and why societies go wrong and what specifically is happening here and what we need to do to not have it happen. And then trying to t- figure out what the big story is there and write it as one big story with one big framework. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. That was author Tim Urban. We interviewed Tim way back in the early days of Labyrinths. Episode 6, Plato the Primate Pooped. We had become fans of Tim's eccentric, entertaining, insightful, silly, and deeply researched blog, WaitButWhy.com, where he dug into topics like the Fermi Paradox. Where's all the aliens? Whether you should get insurance to cryo-freeze your body after death. You'd be a fool not to. And why you secretly hate cool bars. They're the worst. Tim's blog posts are often quite long, but they're fun reads because Tim leans in hard to his terrible cartooning skills to make evocative and funny illustrations, often using stick figures. These images are crucial to his work because he has a real talent for visualizing abstract concepts. That daunting blog post Tim was working on back when we first interviewed him was called The Story of Us, and it eventually transformed into Tim's recent book, What's Our Problem?, which is an attempt to address the big, thorny questions about the political, tribal, and social dysfunction in our society. And the central insight he's been developing since that early blog post is that the left-right-center axis we use to talk about politics and social policies is insufficient. We also need a vertical axis. So horizontal is what we're all used to, right? We have left-right-center, far left, far right, and all that, moderate, left, moderate. That's all horizontal. It's a one-dimensional spectrum, and that's great. Um, We need that. That's a useful uh, framework for thinking about politics. We need more than just that. You know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, we need more people in the centers. So then a lot of other people kind of hate centrists and think they don't do anything or that they're just kind of defend the status quo. And, and I, I think that's not really what anyone's arguing about in those situations. I think they're talking about a second axis. I call it like a ladder. And when you're on the low rungs of the ladder, kind of towards the, the bottoms, you're just in the tribal us versus them mindset. And oh, every issue becomes a clear battle of good and evil. Every the policy position it seems extremely obvious. It seems like you and your people suddenly are perfect. You, you have all the right answers. You're perfectly righteous. You've done nothing wrong. And all the problem is with the other people who aren't just dumb. They're, they're evil. They're bad people. They're dangerous. Tim visualizes all of us as being in a continual tug of war between our primitive minds and our higher minds. 
And when our higher minds are in control, we're higher up the thought ladder. At the top, we think like scientists, beholden only to the truth. In the middle are sports fans who fondly advocate for their side, within the rules of fair play. And below them, attorneys who cherry-pick evidence as needed to argue for their side. At the bottom, we think like zealots, willing to do whatever is necessary for our side to triumph. And we are ruled by confirmation bias. So... This is a place we've all been. Uh, I call it political Disney World, or more generally, just low-rung politics. And it's a mindset we can get in. And there are a lot of people down there right now, mired there. You can say maybe it's because of the way the shift in the media landscape, the way U.S. politics have evolved over the years to become much more kind of two parties that are ideologically pure, uh, as opposed to the old days when you had progressives and conservatives in both parties. Now, the alternative is high-rung politics, which is when we are not in that tribal mindset. When you're free of that delusion, then you just do what makes sense, actually. You just, there's humility. You don't think you're perfect or that your people who agree with you have all the answers. So you know that you have faults and flaws and so do the people you align with. And you also don't dehumanize the others who disagree with you. You might think they're wrong, misguided, but you don't think they're evil and subhuman because that's not what people are like. All people are complex and you don't stereotype giant groups of people, you know, people's individuals. And when you come up with your policy positions, what you think about any given stance, it's nuanced. You say, I don't know a lot, first of all, which down below in the ladder, no one ever says. And your positions might be all over the place. They might not align with one tribe. They probably wouldn't. And they're complex. And you like having discussions and you don't mind when your ideas are challenged. You think it's interesting. And if someone makes a really good point, you might change your mind which is something that down in the low rungs, no one ever does. So my book is trying to lay this out and then is trying to make the case for why high-rung politics is something we should all be striving for and why it's good and why low-rung politics is bad and dangerous and actually not that that a group of people are bad because we all can do this. It's a certain mindset that's going to get that that leads us in a bad direction. When I criticize low-rung politics, I'm going to talk about uh, stuff on the left and the right because it's happening across the board, as it usually is. I'm criticizing the whole... Uh, low-rung political game, the whole tribal political game, uh, which I think is a game that everyone loses in. And But if you only have one dimension, all you can say is, well, I guess this position is the center because he's criticizing both the left and the right. So Tim's on the center and he thinks the left and the right are both bad. But that's not at all what I'm saying. Actually, I'm saying high-rung politics is good. And, and on the high rungs, you have left, right, center, far right, far left. All of those can be high rungs. It's not a centrist position, even though sometimes it will end up aligning with the center. So once you have the second dimension, I find that it just opens up your mind and opens up conversations and can help clarify, uh, I think, what a lot of times people are trying to get at. Is it natural for us to be low rung or high rung? Did you go into like the history of human thinking and human psychology and try to understand what comes naturally to us and whether or not the state of affairs that we are currently in is an exception or is the rule? Yeah, so I think actually both of these come naturally to us in different situations. So there's an interesting study I reference often, 2016, used fMRI data, I think it was like 20 stances of the participants, and 10 of them were political. And the other 10 were not, you know, maybe something like Thomas Edison actually was a bad guy, you know, challenged 
ba- basic stances that don't happen to be political versus ones that do yeah. about abortion it, or the eagles change. suck something like that <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> although that one actually probably might uh, end up in the, in the <laughs> political camp. because it, it, so what, of course what happened is people have a totally different way of thinking about wait, when, wait, it's a, a totally different thing happens in the brain when political views are challenged versus non-political views when non-political views are challenged the parts of our brain that are associated with rational thinking uh, light up. And when those parts of the brain were lit up for those non-political challenges, they often changed their mind about it. When the political views were challenged, a totally different set of brain structures lit up. There was like activity in like the amygdala and other parts of the limbic system associated with the fight or flight parts of our brain, the emotional centers of our brain, and something called the default mode network, which is a set of brain structures associated with introspective thinking. And when you consider your own identity uh, and you look inwards as a, and you kind of withdraw from the external world. And so the, it suggests that political ideas are actually a much different part of our brain is thinking about them. And of course, what happens is that people were very unlikely to change their mind even when the evidence was really strong, when those parts of the brain were doing the thinking. Um, And so the point is that it's our nature to use both ways of thinking, depending on the situation. The higher mind is doing the thinking in the first case, and the primitive mind is doing the thinking with the second case. So we use both of these parts of our brain all the time. And certain environments or certain kind of social situations can trigger our primitive mind to kind of rush in the room and take over our thinking. That's kind of what I would define low-rung politics as. It's a mindset where people are thinking with their primitive mind about politics. Now, politics happens to be one of the topics that often inflames our primitive mind and gets it it, rushing into the room to take over. And uh, same with religion, same with some other topics on nutrition, how people raise their kids, maybe even sports fandom, like you just brought up. I was going to ask that, Um, yeah. I mean, it's all tribes, right? Yeah, exactly. Politics for so long was life or death, right? If 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 the wrong chief is in tr- in in charge, you know, you might end up losing your wife or losing your position in the tribe and uh, you're not going to have much food or you're kicked out of the tribe and you might die or you'll never mate because you're low status now. I mean, really really mm-hmm. awful things. Religion, you know, this is what people associate with the afterlife and with their eternal soul, right? So that's going to really get our fight or flight instinct going. And things like nutrition has to do with what we're putting in our body. It meant life or death in the old days or nationalism. You know, xenophobia comes from people who from faraway places who look different might have actually given you diseases that killed you back a long time ago. That was a common thing. Uh, How you raise your kids. These are really kind of primitive things, right? Mm -hmm. And sports fandom, because it, it taps into that tribal instinct. Versus most other topics, there are topics that tend to drag our psyches down on the ladder, and that is human nature. But if you're just trying to solve a problem, you're out in the woods and you're trying to figure out how to light this flint and someone is challenging your belief on how to do it, you're not going to have a tribal part of your brain wake up and say, you're an asshole and you're not <laughs> identifying with that viewpoint. You don't think about it. The people who agree with me on how to light a fire are the mm-hmm. good, worthy people and the other people are subhuman. That would make no sense. You're just trying to find the truth. So you'd say, sure, tell me, what, what am I doing wrong? Mm-hmm. So it's also human nature to be very rational and to look for truth and to be good at finding truth. Humans are amazing at that when they're in their right minds. So politics has a tendency to do that. But the storyline, I think, recently is that it's becoming a lot more like that. There are mechanisms in our society right now that are especially inflaming this kind of low-rung thinking when it comes to politics. One of the things I loved most about 
how you wrapped this all up in the end is the the notion of climb, the mantra. We're all on the ladder. We all fall down to the bottom rungs of the ladder at times. And that gentle reminder to yourself, okay, climb. And it reminds me of, maybe we showed you these tattoos. Amanda and I have some matching tattoos on our wrists. One is a resistor symbol, which is our skepticism symbol. It's a filter for information coming in and going out so that we're not just easy conduits for information that comes our way. And then the other one is our sort of recipe for productive conversations, which might be also termed as a way to climb up the ladder. And it's a Venn diagram for finding common ground with whoever we're engaging with with, a knight helmet to represent steel manning the other person's position, a heart for compassion for however that person arrived at the beliefs that they have, and a delta symbol for being willing to change our own minds regarding whatever's at hand. And if we're operating on our own higher mind selves, like we're doing all those things. And if we're not hitting that checklist, chances are we're acting more like an attorney like or a sports assholes. fan or a zealot <laughs> in regards to some particular topic. I really love that because that really maps onto so many of the things I talk about with high-rung thinking. The, the thing that's hard is we know how to high-rung think. We know it's important and we forget to do it and we yep. unconsciously slip out of it. And a tattoo is an amazing way to just daily remind yourself and come back to this. This well, we'll send you I a picture you. so you can get it too. <laughs> okay, I'll get it too. <laughs> That's a great idea. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Maybe you can help resolve an issue that Chris and I have debated at length, and that is the role of emotion and emotional intelligence and its relationship with rationality. You talked about how there's your higher mind and then there's your primitive mind, and your primitive mind is reacting emotionally to things, whereas your higher mind is acting rationally to things. And and we even had a debate where he was like, the rationale part of a, whatever your conviction is, is the part that you can actually engage with. The emotional part is something that you can't because only one person has access to those emotions. And so how do you engage with them? I had a different viewpoint, which is that emotions are themselves information. And yes, it requires emotional intelligence to process them, but one shouldn't just dismiss out of hand emotions as being valid concepts or, or valid things to engage with in a high level way. And so I'm wondering, given this whole like framework, how do you interpret emotions and their role in the formulation of convictions. I was trying to argue to him that ultimately, fundamentally, all of our convictions don't rest on rationality. They rest on emotions, because in the grand scheme of the universe, there is no rhyme or reason. Things just exist. And then we feel things about them. And then we form rational ideas about how we should feel about them. Like what is right or wrong ultimately comes down to a feeling. I think it's way too reductive to say something like rationality, good, emotions, bad. Because first of all, 
it is fundamentally human to have emotions and to have emotions be part of who you are and what you believe and how you act. If you totally take that away, you're not really human. I would never ask or expect anyone to do that. I wouldn't try to do it myself. So I talked about the higher mind and the primitive mind. And I, I don't consider them, it's like one or the other. So I, I have like a, a rope between them. Like it's almost like a tug of war. They're both always in the picture. But when you really have agency in your own head, you're thinking and acting in a way that makes sense. The higher mind is in charge. So the primitive mind's still there, like an animal on a leash. So the rope is kind of like a leash in that case. And the primitive mind is running around feeling emotion and you're feeling that and it's informing things and it is information. When they go together, when you're kissing your significant other and you feel a ton of emotion and it also makes sense. It's not like there's a conflict there. The higher mind saying, great, you know, this is awesome. And the primitive mind saying, great, this is awesome, right? So there's plenty of times when these two have no conflict. So, but how about when they do? How about when common sense conflicts with emotion? That's when you want the higher mind to be able to kind of tug on the leash and say, nope, that's not what we're doing. You know, I know suddenly you feel a lot of hatred for this person that disagrees with you, or you're just kind of making these, these really brash, bigoted assumptions about the whole group of people. You know, that's when the, the higher mind, if you're in, in a good shape in your brain, will say, will override that and say, it doesn't make sense. That's not real. Just put that away. Or when you're confronted with compelling evidence against something you believe strongly, you're going to feel a negative emotion that's going to want to run away and it's going to want to reject the evidence and the person who said it. They're a bad person. So that's confirmation bias, right? That's a tug of war because the higher mind is saying, this is interesting evidence. We should change our mind or we should at least consider it. Primitive mind is saying, fuck no. Uh, this is a threat to who we are. And these people are awful, evil people. And we need to never associate them with them again for pushing such dangerous, harmful information towards us. You want the higher mind to win that battle and to say, it doesn't feel good. Yes, there's a part of me that's really upset. I have to change my mind here and I'm resisting it. But you know what? I'm going to change my mind. That's what you're hoping. Now, when you slip down below the high rungs to the midpoint of the ladder and you get to the low rungs, that midpoint is defined by when the balance of power changes. So now there's still a tug of war, but now that primitive mind's running the show. And so now that the confirmation bias will win out. You will not be able to change your mind on a topic that's primitive mind holds sacred. You will, um, you, you will uh, end up you know, hating whole groups of people in a way that doesn't actually map on to what you know about people, because you're kind of in a, in a delusional haze, which we all, again, we all can fall into it. And that's not good. I don't think that's good for anyone. I don't think it's good for you. I don't think that's good for the world. I think that's when we get ourselves into trouble. And that's kind of when emotion runs buck wild and kind of completely takes over our brain and we become like a stupid version of ourselves. And that's when we do harm to others and we self-defeat and all of that. So that's kind of my answer to that. I think if we think of it as a tug of war and we realize that the primitive mind is great, we want him around. It's just that we want more often than not to kind of feel like we're in control of it and we can override it when it's getting us into trouble. I'm curious your take on a related metaphor by Jonathan Haidt uh, in The Righteous Mind, which I'm, I believe you even referenced in the book. The rider and the elephant, right? The, the idea that the subconscious mind, in his sort of metaphorical phrasing, is you know, responsible for 90% of the behavior or thought that a person goes in. And then the rational mind is the rider on top, kind of gently suggesting the elephant go left or right. But generally, the elephant goes where it wants to. And the rider's job is mostly to justify post hoc why the elephant went that way. How does your framework square with that or contradict with that idea of how minds work? 
There are a lot of like two mind frameworks out there. You know, there's system one and system two from Daniel Kahneman. This goes all the way back to, you know, Plato. And there's a lot of philosophers along the way. And they're all a little bit different and, and they're, they're different from my framework. And so I don't try to make a perfect comparison. Some of them are based in hard science. Now, mine is not as much. My, mine is, I think, a useful framework for kind of understanding different modes we can be in when it comes to thinking or politics or whatever. The way uh, I think about it is that when you're mired down in the low rungs, the elephant is totally running the show and you just have no control over it. But I think there are times when we can be good at overriding it actually. And we can kind of be up on the high rungs and we can learn how the elephant works and maybe it becomes less of an elephant in those moments. Maybe it's more mm. of a donkey that uh, <laughs> we have reins for or a horse that we can actually navigate around a little bit. And and now, oh, look, I'm driving this horse and actually I'm in charge. And then, of course, something lights up our, you know, a certain primitive you know, primitive emotions or a certain topic comes up and boom, that, that horse blows up into an elephant. And now we're just along for the ride. So I would say it oscillates a little bit between those two things. Tim's book and his ideas aren't just about individuals though. They're about societies and how these different positions on the vertical axis of the thought ladder create cultures and incentives at the level of groups. Culture is a group's way of saying, this is how we do things here. And so when you're with one group of friends, maybe you're being a little bit more racy in your jokes or whatever. And then you're with a different group of friends and you button up a little bit and you, maybe your sense of humor shifts a little bit. And they're both sides of you, but the, the, there's a culture that you are kind of, you're, you're jibing with in both cases. We do this all the time. We kind of culture switch, you know, and this, mm-hmm. or some people are much more like, I'm always who I am, no matter what culture I am in. And other people blend in with the culture. And some people set the tone of the culture and, and their groups and other ones follow along. And so one of the many ways that uh, you can have culture, that you can have a, how we do things here is how you deal with ideas. And an echo chamber to me is an intellectual culture that serves the low rung thinking and low rung thinking kind of goals and style. That low rung thinking is about confirming the ideas you already believe. And it's very tribal. It's very much related, not just to the idea, but to the people who believe mm-hmm. it are the good people. And the people who don't believe it are the bad people. So echo chamber culture to me is when how we do things here is that intellectually, when there's a certain set of ideas, often political, where you know you do not disagree with the groom on this. You can go down the checklist of political positions. And in in that kind of culture, everyone will hold all the same exact stances on every single issue. And even just deviating from that with one issue, people would be mad at you. It'd be a really negative reaction. Mm -hmm. And you don't see that many impassioned arguments in a group like that because when you're arguing about ideas in a group like that, it seems like a fight. It seems like this person's an asshole and I don't want to be friends with them anymore. And part of what in echo chamber culture you'll always hear is that we are the good people and we are the elite good people or we're the humble good people and the other people are bad. And that's half the conversation is just about that. It's about obsessing over how bad those people are. So when you're in that culture, it encourages low rung thinking in each individual. It's like a gravity that drags our psyches downwards on the ladder just to be around that. None of us are immune to that. And what it is in effect is collaborative low rung thinking. So they're going to keep believing what they believe. They're never going to change their mind. They're going to feel a lot of unearned conviction. They might not know very much, but they think they do. And they're, they're very tribal about it. When you're doing collaborative low rung thinking, the group kind of enforces that upon each other. Um, that's why when one person challenges the group, they get kicked out of the group. They're like a cancer. 
if the goal mm-hmm. is to kind of keep believing what we believe and to prove how right we are, someone in the group expressing doubt is a bad person. They need to be out. And to be popular, you just express very strong conviction about how right the sacred ideas are. So what's the opposite of that, right? What's the high-rung version? I call it an idea lab. It's collaborative, high-rung thinking. So it's an intellectual culture where where it's not cool to identify with your ideas. To get really offended when someone challenges you makes you seem weird and thin-skinned and expressing unearned conviction doesn't make you seem righteous and smart like it does in an echo chamber. It makes you seem like an idiot. And saying, I don't know, and expressing humility you know, in an echo chamber that makes you seem wishy-washy and weak or, or privileged mm-hmm. and callous or whatever. But in the high rung, expressing humility makes you seem smart, like trustworthy and realistic. And arguments are fine because people in an idea lab attack ideas. No idea is safe in an idea lab. You throw your idea out, people for sport will try to prove it wrong. But no one's attacking you. People are safe. You can throw out any idea, even an idea that might seem kind of offensive. People will break down. Well, why do you think that? Let's get into that. And so the disagreement is sport there and it's fun and people play with ideas. And that encourages high rung thinking. It's like an upwards magnet that helps us avoid our natural tendency to do low rung thinking, confirmation bias and cognitive fallacy. And it makes us better thinkers. It does kind of what your tattoos do in the, mm. in the, the group culture version of that. And the Emergent property of that is super intelligence, right? The emergent property of an echo chamber is just a big, dumb, brute giant that has firm conviction and hates the other tribe and can be kind of scary, but very stupid. And the emergent property of an idea lab is a bunch of individual brains connecting to each other like neurons. And that's how you have actual something that's smarter than the sum of its parts. That's how you end up with this incredible society. You know, scientists across cultures and across generations and countries abiding by idea lab culture and criticizing each other's findings and building upon each other's findings. And that's how you end up with these incredible technological advances we have. That's because humans have this capacity to be super intelligent if we have the right culture. So this kind of culture affects all of us because whatever you're in a group, the intellectual culture is somewhere on the ladder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, it goes for individual couples. If if you're married, you know, I can never bring up politics around my spouse or disagree with them because they'll they'll freak out and they'll get in a huge fight. What's happening is your spouse is bullying you. Your spouse is basically imposing echo chamber culture upon the couple, right? Which Mm -hmm. now makes the couple a, a less interesting place to be, in my opinion. And it can go all the way to a group of people, to a classroom, to a whole national culture. So I think it's a useful framework. It sounds like each of these, the echo chamber and the idea lab, have something they hold sacred, right? And in the echo chamber, it's the horizontal axis. It's your place on the axis. A set of ideas are the thing that is supreme, right? We believe this and these things above all else. But in the idea lab, it is your vertical position that is sacred. It's how you think versus what you think, right? And You call people out in the echo chamber when they deviate from what you think, and you call people out in the idea lab when they deviate from how you think. Um, Hey, dude, you're thinking like a zealot here. Come back up to the high rung with us. That's a great way to describe it. The idea lab is totally agnostic about horizontal position. You can be anywhere, and individuals can go back and forth all over the place with ideas, skip around, test ideas, play with them, move, change your mind, you know? Your friend wants to join us who has a totally different view, amazing, bring them in, right? So horizontal is, you know, great, go to town, but stay up here. Yeah, in the low rungs, it's the exact opposite. There's no uh, concern for the vertical. They'll just go right to the bottom 
but you better not move left or right on this axis. You know, your feet are nailed into the Mm -hmm. horizontal there. And we will put a lot of social pressure on everyone to stay right here horizontally. Do not get out. Do not Mm. move. You'll get a severe social penalty. There's a term out there for those of us who did not go to philosophy school, but are significant others of people who went to philosophy school. And that is the term philosophy attack (laughs) or philosopher attack. And I'm curious to know in the space of like the idea lab, on the one hand, it sounds like this ideal space where ideas can thrive and nobody's feelings get hurt. But in practice, we all can't help but identify or or even just have personal experiences that inform our convictions. And so how does the Idea Lab ideally grapple with compassion for that kind of, I would argue, inevitable sort of emotions that run alongside our ideas. On the one hand, I could see it being this like beautiful ideal space where everyone's kind and really considerate about how emotions are informing a lot of our convictions. But I could also see it be the kind of place where everyone is just super freaking snarky at each other all the time because we're all just playing with ideas, whatever. We can say whatever we want and a little bit fuck you. <laughs> so like, Have you seen how these idea labs are playing out and where kindness and compassion plays a role in them? A lot of my friend groups, I would say, qualify as pretty good idea labs. They are certainly not always nice places. Sometimes I want to murder everyone (laughs) in the idea lab with me. And sometimes I'm in a bad mood because people are mocking my, you know, whatever. So what I would say is sometimes people mistake all the stuff I'm talking about, high-rung thinking, high-rung politics, high-rung intellectual culture for total, like, grown-up civility and niceness. And and that's not necessarily, you know, high-rung politics, I think, is passionate. It can be out in the streets screaming in a protest. And and likewise, can, can be full of heated arguments where people have to apologize later. And high-rung thinking can be, you know, frustrating. The idea is to have this framework in your in mind. To understand that these two kinds of intellectual culture, that they fall on a spectrum. You're not in a pure idea lab or pure echo chamber that often. You're you're, you're more often going to be somewhere in between, and it's going to be oscillating kind of up and down a little bit. Uh, I think the goal is to have the idea lab values in mind, to seek out people that seem that they also kind of like that, to call out the group when it's not doing that, or try to notice when it's happening, inevitably. But I will say, of the two cultures... Uh, Idea Lab is going to be the much more easy one to make a mistake in. To if you act echo chambery in an Idea Lab, people are probably going to understand. You know, it's human. They're not going to be like you are evil because you're, if you're in the high rung mindset, you're thinking of again all humans as flawed and all humans as worthy of compassion. There's a humility to it, so you know that you sometimes do this, and so you're not going to excommunicate someone for getting too offended by a point and making it hard to argue that day and kind of ruining the argument. Okay, you know, if they do it 10 times in a row, okay, whatever, maybe this person is not very fun to hang out with, but it's not going to be the biggest deal. So you can you can have a flawed idea lab, right? An idea lab that's not a perfect idea lab where people aren't acting exactly how you wish people would. And it can still thrive and it can still function and it can go up and down and end up back up. An echo chamber is much more rigid, right? Sometimes you mess up in an echo chamber once and you're done. Uh, You challenge the ideas once in public and an echo chamber will try to 
cancel you. It'll try to you know, ruin your life. The idea lab, it's more human, right? Humans are flawed. Humans make mistakes. The idea lab is messy. It's meant to, to have to imperfections. And it's kind of almost like a support group for tribal people who are trying to be better. You know, you can have combos. We have echo chamber culture with nice people. There's plenty of nice people. And again, I've been in echo chamber culture. I've enforced it on others without realizing it. And I know lots of people I love who do this. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're bad people. It means they have a tendency to identify with their ideas and to trust other people who do so and for very quickly you end up in that kind of culture and so you can have one where you mess up and people give you a talking to and they say you know and as long as you apologize and say i have a lot to learn maybe you can stay in the echo chamber but i think inherently it's going to be a worse space to mess up than the idea lab as someone who's been unwittingly on the aggressive end of a philosopher attack many times especially in my early 20s i was used to living in that idea lab space with my close friends and confidants and treating all ideas as entrance in the boxing ring, slap them apart, break them down, smash them into each other. And you step out of that circle and you meet a new friend or start talking to somebody, you're used to interacting in that mode and you haven't gauged necessarily what rung they're on or how closely they associate their own ideas with their identity, all these other things. All of a sudden, you may have sort of inadvertently pushed them into the boxing ring in a way that they weren't ready for. And it leads to bad results in my experience. It doesn't lead to them joining your idea lab when they're not prepared to be in the boxing ring. And a part of that, I think, has to do with the role of empathy and compassion. Like how does an idea lab beat or absorb an echo chamber or convert the members of the echo chamber into the idea lab? I like to think of three kinds of spaces that, it, that you can be in in a society. You know, one is somewhere that's supposed to be an official idea lab. That's part of what defines it. Like a research institute. Yeah, or it can be your own party. Maybe you throw these salons. Yeah. And that's what you've decided. This is an official idea lab. You also have official echo chambers, right? Like obviously uh, many church groups, totally. right? You're not going to walk in there and say- Or political um, rallies or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but plenty of places where it's like this entire group is based on belief in this certain set of ideas. And if you don't believe this certain set of ideas, you are not welcome here. You're missing the point. Okay, and that's fine. What's cool about a place like America is these can coexist. People are free to go- join echo chambers and give up their marketplace of ideas for themselves. You know, if that's what you prefer, then go for it. And they're free to, to leave that and go surround themselves with idea lab culture. And then the third space I would say is somewhere that's kind of like ambiguous, you know, maybe it's a friend's birthday party and you're just there at a dinner with 20 people and you're sitting with some strangers, right? What I would say is in the ambiguous space, I think it's nice to be polite. Like to use religion as an example, I, I'm an atheist. I don't think it would be a nice thing to just sit down at a table with people I don't know and say like, oh my God, you know, people who believe in God, imagine believing God. I would, that would be a real <laughs> asshole way to be, right? Or if someone else is at the table talking about their religion, if I scoffed at it, I'd be a real dick, right? It's just not polite behavior. It's not nice behavior. I think if you're in a situation where you're just meeting new people, I think it's totally reasonable to be cautious and to kind of feel out where they are. And you can hint to each other maybe about where you are. And then sometimes you realize, oh, okay, wait a second. We totally agree on this. Or we're, we're, we think the same way about this. And then you can suddenly like dig in and start being super real with them. And you can also be cautious and realize, okay, this is not, if you're just like, I'm going to bring my idea lab everywhere I go and show everyone, you're going to end up being that yeah. really aggressive political person starting arguments everywhere. So that's not good. Now, when there's an official idea lab, so you hold a salon for ideas. Well, you're trying to create a little genie, right? Which is kind of the emergent giant that I came up with for this good idea lab culture. 
Tim visualizes groups of people working together as different kinds of giants, higher-order entities that have agency in society. In his whimsical framing, echo chambers create big brutes he calls golems. A classic example of a golem would be a church or a political party. Golems live on the bottom rung of the thought ladder and are differentiated from each other by where they are at on the horizontal idea spectrum, left, right, or center. Golems attempt to use force and social ostracism to maintain and grow their echo chambers. They are not interested in challenging their ideas, only affirming them and destroying their enemies. Idea labs lead to a different kind of giant, the genie. A classic example of a genie would be a research lab or a university, or even a small intellectual salon. Genies aren't defined by where they are at on the idea spectrum, but by their commitment to high-rung thinking. Genies, too, have ways of maintaining and growing their idea labs. Now, when someone who comes to the salon is basically getting super offended or calling people an awful person or whatever, and that's classic bully behavior, right? That's basically saying, no, 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 this is an echo chamber. What they're actually doing is they're issuing a challenge to the culture, like Mm. in a courtroom. They're saying, objection. Yeah, And you as the judge can either say sustained, in which case you've seated the culture. Now everyone's going to tiptoe around that issue. In other words, they're going to live in the echo chamber that that person is now imposing. Because mm. as the judge, you said sustained. You, or you can say overruled. And that's what I think people should do. I think that leaders in places, companies or social groups, universities, wherever, who think this is supposed to be an an idea lab kind of high-rung space, when that challenge is inevitably issued to the culture, I think it's their kind of imperative to say, overruled, no, that's not how we do things Mm -hmm. here. A lot of the problems, I think, are people who know that's the right thing to do, losing their nerve and saying, okay, you're right, we we apologize, we affirm our commitment to this and this, we have a lot to learn, you know, apologies, which is in other words saying, we made a huge mistake, sorry, we should have been in the echo chamber, you were right, from now on, we'll be in echo chamber. So, I think that it's important to figure out what space you're in. And I think that when it is supposed to be an official idea lab, that's a university, that's most companies, if you want to have a smart company that leverages the brains in the company, or a personal friend group. If if it's supposed to be an idea lab and that's part of the definition of it and that's the the important value there and you're in charge of that value, you got to stand up for it because it will be challenged. It's almost like the, the ability to stand up for it is the genie's immune system against golems. If people want to go and be hmm. in an echo chamber I'm not going to try to force you. I can lead by example and maybe you'll realize that like arguing is fun and you'll change your mind. But I I more want to hang around people who are already like that and we can get smarter together. And maybe if you have one friend that you know has so much potential to be a better thinker and you want to cautiously work on them and try to get them to see that being a zealot isn't the best way to be. Sure. But I'm not sure the, the goal is to absorb other golems. The goal is to not let golems completely overrun your space and to, to keep them in check using the immune system. Meanwhile, golems have their own immune system, right? We talked about this a little. If someone in a nucket chamber said, oh, I think actually the other team is right about this, that's the immune system is going to kick yeah. in, treat you like a cancer because you are a cancer and they're going yep. to try to contain the cancer and excommunicate it, cut it out. And so that's their immune system and they can have that And so if I go to an official echo chamber space, like a church group, and I start talking about how I don't believe in God, they're right to kick me out. The the immune system is going to kick in and they're going to say, get the hell out of here. Mm. This is not what we do here. That's fine. They have every right to do that. So I think it's important to think of the three spaces and figure out which one you're in at any given time. That's a great point. And I feel like it's easier to know when you're in an echo chamber because as soon as you 
say something that is not one of the sacred ideas, people very vociferously let you know that you are in an echo chamber. But I feel like it's a little bit harder sometimes to know whether or not you're in an idea lab because there may be some people arrived at position X through an idea lab process and some people got there through an echo chamber process. And it may be that I'm talking with someone at a party I just met and we both agree that drugs should be legalized. And okay, me and this person seem to agree on, on this. Oh yeah, you're also interested in UBI? Okay, interesting. Maybe this person and I are both aspiring high rung thinkers who are who want to be in an idea lab together, but maybe they're not. And maybe it's when I bring up the third thing that they go, whoa, you violated my sacred taboo. And I'm like, oh, okay. This person, at least on this topic, is totally not in a high rung mode. Are there signs? Like what signals do you look out for? And what signals can you give to let people know that you're in an idea lab space? So one signal that I think is, is a telltale sign of someone who's used to spending time in echo chambers is they will assume that everyone agrees with them before they mm. even know anyone. They'll say something like, they'll talk about the election as if obviously everyone's voting for the guy I'm voting for. Or an issue comes up in the news, a current events thing, and they talk about it as if, of course, we all agree on the same side here. People in an idea lab, it's not an instinct to do that because they're so used to being around people who disagree that it doesn't make sense, right? They're not often in a place where everyone's going to agree anyway. But if you're in an echo chamber all the time, you, you, for, you don't even realize that there are places that I might be hanging out with people that seem like they could be my friends that don't all agree. Like that's this Mm. mind-blowing concept. So you'll notice that. And then the way that I can test it is sometimes I'll just throw out, again, a gentle, polite, Mm. not overly aggressive, but gentle disagreement on something. They say, well, the last thing we would ever want, of course, is LSD to be legalized. Uh, Either I can say, look, I'm going to be here for 10 more minutes. I'm just going to not engage. Or if this is someone I might see again, or just for fun, I might say, I'm not sure about that, actually. Or I might ask a question, so why do you think that? And, and, and engage. And pretty quickly, mm. you'll see if, if this is someone who is interested and kind of lights up and says, oh, okay, well, here's what I'm thinking, but, but you disagree, tell me. And they seem excited, yeah. interesting. Or if they say, uh, because obviously LSD is bad, uh, is that not something you think is obvious? Or you, you, they have this kind of aggressiveness. Mm. They're feeling threatened just by your challenge. And so at that point, you have options, right? If this is your space and you're the leader, you, you're a coward if you don't stand up to the bully. Yeah. But if you're just at a party and you're in that third space, I don't think it's cowardly at all to just decide, I'm not yeah. going to like try to engage this. I mean, it doesn't even mean they're a bad person. You might say, this person is super echo chamber, but you know what? They're hilarious and I, and I love them and I want to hang out with them. And I'm just not going to enjoy myself intellectually with them so much, but we're going to have fun in other ways. You know, it, it doesn't mean you can't be friends with the person, but also if, if it's really important to you that your friends can argue and can play with ideas, it is also totally fair to say, yeah, you know what? Like, this is not someone I'm going to be friends with. That's America. Live and let live. Mm. They can go do their thing. You can do your thing. No one's forcing you to be friends. As long as they don't encroach on a space that's supposed to be an idea lab that you're in charge of or that you have staken, there's nothing wrong with the situation. The title of Tim's book is What's Our Problem? And in short, he thinks that our American giant is sick. This macro giant is made up of many smaller giants, golems and genies alike. The problem in Tim's diagnosis is that the golems are winning. 
If an individual is in a constant tug-of-war between the higher mind and the primitive mind, the giant of a society is in a constant tug-of-war between its golems and genies. And right now, with our politics as polarized as it's ever been, and with the mechanisms of social media, which creates self-selected silos of information and opinion, the golems have grown powerful, and the genies are struggling. Another way of putting it is that the rationalist ideals from our Enlightenment-era founders have lost sway in recent decades. Tim came up with another useful visualization, the thought pile and the speech curve, to help make sense of how and why this has happened and what we might do to reverse the trend. The thought pile is if you have a group of people, I, I think of it as the whole country often, but just any group of people, and just say there's a horizontal what you think axis, right? Is specific stances. And you lined everyone up on the axis based on what they think, right? When if two people agree on the same thing, you put one on their shoulders, right? And so everyone's standing on each other's shoulders. When you have a really big group, especially, uh, it starts to form a bell curve. Right. So you're going to have the mainstream kind of ideas in the middle with the most people who believe them and then more controversial out on either side. And then eventually you get to kind of extreme ideas on either side or radical or backwards or what the mainstream would consider at least radical and backwards. And you're going to have fewer people there. So you're going to end up with a kind of a bell curve shape. And that's a representation of what the group or the country thinks about this topic as a unit at any given point. I call it the thought pot. It's, it's a representation of what people are thinking. Now, the speech curve is a line, and you could just define it as the more people that are saying a certain stance out loud, the higher the line mm -hmm. at that point. Now, in a healthy marketplace of ideas, people are just being honest about what they think. You're going to probably have a bell curve thought pile and a speech curve that's also a bell curve that kind of just rests on top of it. Or more people think these mainstream positions or more people are saying that out loud. And it's also being spoken from bigger platforms. You're going to hear it on the news more. You're going to hear the, the president say those positions more often. And you're going to hear them brought up in commercials mm -hmm. or by celebrities. And then as you get to more controversial and radical things, you're going to hear those more on smaller podcasts maybe. And you're going to have fewer people talking about them. So the speech curve lines up with the thought pile. Of course, that's when everything is nice and ideal, Abby, right? right. Some topics, that's going to be the case. As soon as you bring official censorship policies, official censorship is basically when in a country where there's no First Amendment is the government saying, okay, we're putting an electric fence down on this idea spectrum, you know, maybe two thirds of the way over. And everyone has to stay to the right of that. Any viewpoints to the right are fine to say. Any viewpoints for the rest of the spectrum, you will be executed or mm -hmm. imprisoned or whatever. So what happens is the speech curve quickly distorts because you don't have to execute a ton of people, execute three or four, and everyone very quickly falls in line. Self-censorship mm -hmm. takes care of the rest. So now you have the speech curve that becomes wildly distorted. It's really low, except right after the electric fence, it goes really, really high, right. higher than even it warrants because now everyone wants to say the right thing. They want to be in the good graces of the king or whatever. So now you, instead of having one region, which is people saying what they're thinking, you end up with... These two other regions, which is a lot of people thinking stuff they're not saying and a lot of people saying stuff they don't really think. That is what happens with censorship. In that mode, society becomes a little more fragile when the speech curve is highly misaligned, I think, right? It, it really becomes stupid. Mm. As I said, the emergent property of Idealab culture, whether it's in a small group or the whole nation through, through free press and public arguments and debates, you can have a thriving marketplace mm. of ideas. It allows individual brains to connect like neurons into a larger brain and can produce kind of superhuman mm. knowledge and wisdom at its best. 
as soon as you have either the government or a really scary political group uh, that is going to impose social penalties or cancel culture or one of these things, it basically starts putting an electric fence down and distorting the shape of the speech curve. You lose all that group intelligence and you end up with kind of a battle of warring low-rung narratives. And there's two low-rung narratives and they're battling each other for influence and for power. And everyone else just stays quiet and keeps their conversations to small groups. So society becomes more fragile for sure. It loses a lot of its um, robust strength that a liberal democracy can have, but it also just becomes stupid. And that's how a society can just do dumb things and make really, really bad decisions and end up driving itself off a cliff if things get really bad. Yeah. I mean, so historically, most societies on earth have been big golems, right? They weren't idea labs. You had monarchies and kings and you had artificially distorted speech curves. It was kind of the norm, right? This idea that your speech curve would match up with your thought pile in a national idea lab is a very recent development. And right now we have a nation where our lofty goals of being an idea lab are faltering. And it seems as if our golems are sort of more powerful than we'd like them to be. Is that inevitable? Is there something about the legacy code of, of a democracy that you can only iterate and improve so many times until the thing kind of starts to crumble and you need revolution to s start from scratch? Uh, you know, we see this happening not just in the U.S., but you look at Europe and other places around the world, and I, f I feel like the golems are on the rise there, too. Um, what's going on? Why are the golems winning right now? As far as whether it's inevitable, I think the only appropriate answer is I don't know. And the reason is, this is new, right? Liberal democracies are like a few lifetimes old. Modern liberal democracies, you know, the concept of democracies goes way back, of course. But a U.S. style kind of very complex liberal democracy, it's new. And at least what it's shown so far is that it, that you can bend the rules and and kind of corrupt it temporarily, but it's hard to break it. You know, the U.S. has been bent a lot of times, been distorted, has been corrupted, but it kind of bounces back. So that gives me hope, at least. I, again, I don't know because we live in some unprecedented times. We haven't had the Internet and social media and these tribal media stations. And we have a lot of existential risk that's, you know, lighting up a lot of people's fears in a way. And ideas spread globally now in this crazy rapid way. There's a lot of things that are unprecedented. So maybe this is the time when they break. But at least history would suggest that we're in a situation now when things are bending, one of the many. The Red Scare recently was another. Things are bending, but that doesn't mean they're going to break. And that if history is an indicator that things will bounce back, reason will prevail. That kind of epidemic of cowardice in leadership ha will you know, become too shameful and people will start having courage. And it'll become cool to speak up and cool to push back against these things and defend idea lab culture. And that this kind of cultural censorship that's been on the rise will start to decline. So I do have some optimism. I think it's hard to understand exactly why it's happened as I just gave some potential reasons, but societies are in incredibly complex and it's hard to know. And it's hard to know what will get us out of it. The only thing I can point to is I see with my eyes, a lot of cowardice and leadership as leaders, you know, of places like Harvard and Yale and the New York Times and the ACLU and the American Medical Association and Random House, you know, a lot of places, they're the same stories. And, it, and it's that people who know better, who know that they're, they're supposed to be in charge of an idea lab, even if they're not using that term. And they're, they're basically allowing a group they're scared of to say, well, this is our echo chamber now. And they say, uh, okay, yes, we're so sorry. So 
I, I do think that what's called for is courage. And I don't think you need that much courage because this is not one of those times when the mob is going to lynch you. You know, they're not killing people. They're getting people fired or more likely they're just shaming and ostracizing you. And that's bad. But you know what? There's worse things. Like you don't actually need that much courage. We're not in Iran burning hijabs and, you know, yeah. like getting in, in, executed mm-hmm. for it. That's real courage. Like, so that's why I think it's, it's actually a reasonable goal here because you only need a little courage. Yeah, you talk in the end of the book about you recommend people do a self-audit of their own beliefs and how they arrived at them. So I'm curious, in your own self-auditing while writing this book, do you have any examples of anything that you realized, oh, actually, I shouldn't believe that? And then lastly, you know, you spent a lot of time working on this book, and I believe you got married and then became a father in the course of this whole project. And I'm curious about if becoming a husband and a father has impacted your thinking on any of these issues and how you would want your own child now to learn about the world. It's a very humbling experience writing a book about high-rung thinking because inevitably you're going to end up falling down to the low rungs because you're writing a book, you're going to really get attached to your ideas and you're going to start doing that thing that you shouldn't do. You're going to, oh, I'm cherry-picking evidence. Oh, I just saw someone sent me a compelling case that actually muddies my case a little bit. And what did I do? I just totally disregarded it, rolled my eyes. Whoa, that's not good. Mm -hmm. That's low rung thinking. What am I doing? I am trying to drive my uh, beliefs in a direction that's convenient as opposed to just looking for truth. So I had to continually remind myself to do this. Now, one of the things that helps is that I have friends who are not afraid to say, you're wrong, you're biased. And I I credit them for the fact that I think the book ended up in a pretty honest place because I had friends read the book. I had a lot of people read the book before I published it. And they were very honest and calling me out on inconsistencies or if I seem like I'm doing a bias. So I definitely did that a lot while writing about why it's bad to do it. And I think that the, the best a writer can do is have a bunch of people read it and be willing to go and self-reflect, come back to it a few months later, look at it and be willing to say, this isn't right here. I need to just admit that and just muddy the waters and it won't be as pretty, but it's going to be more honest and a better book for it. I'm sure if I read it now, again, I would start to see parts where I've been biased, there's no doubt, but I tried at least to minimize it. And then as far as having a kid, I mean... Yeah, it just raises the stakes of everything. It's one thing to write about the future when you think, okay, well, maybe I'm 70 and we have AI takes over. Okay, but when it's like, oh man, but like my kid's gonna be in the middle of her life and then we have grandkids and like, it makes you much more kind of long-term thinking. And when it comes to something like these concepts, yeah, I I have to think about how to raise a kid because you wanna raise a high-rung thinker, but when they inevitably, you know, young kids, especially teens, college, because they can get very zealot. Like I was like that at that age about certain topics and you have to give space to grow. You have to understand you're not going to be a perfect high-rung thinker from the get-go. And I, I'm going to try to do my best to be compassionate towards the long roller coaster that life is the, of growth. And so I'm going to try not to shove my values onto my daughter. But I do hope to instill them in a way that she will kind of discover them on her own over time with my help. You can find Tim Urban's book, What's Our Problem? and all his other sundry musings on waitbutwhy.com. If you're enjoying the high-rung thinking here on Labyrinths, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. You can learn more about our work and how to support it at knoxrobinson.com. And please, help us grow this humble idea lab by leaving us a five-star review and bringing some like-minded friends into the conversation. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. 
This episode was written and produced by us with editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. And you end up, um, well, hello. <laughs> this is a fun, a fun development. Oh, yeah. Wow. The baby just uh, came into the vocals. <laughs> Everything got much cuter around here just now um, because there's a tiny little person who I'm now hanging out with. Hello. How are you? You want to say something to the microphone? Yeah. yeah. Oh. What else do you want to say? Are you, uh, are, you, are you a high rung thinker or a low rung thinker? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure all ideas are are open season right now for her. So I think she's high rung. That's true. She's probably the ultimate high rung. Yeah. As long as she gets what she wants. Yeah. No. Captain's Log, Stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Robinson.